It's February 2021, and the Don't Look Up production has managed to remain free from a COVID outbreak, despite rising cases in the city. This is because Jennifer Lawrence and everyone else in the bubble has lived by strict rules. No going out, no shared dinners after work, no germ swapping of any kind, except... Blows my mind that I'm gonna be like open mouth kissing somebody in the, in the next week. I'm just like, how does that work? Like, <laughs> I haven't even shared a water bottle with somebody. Jennifer is about to share more than a water bottle with co-star Timothy Chalamet. It's day 52 of the shoot, and producers Jeff Waxman and Stacey Roberts-Steele are prepping for makeout day. Unfortunately, the internet has also been tipped off to the scene, and fans have arrived at the production's outer perimeter to try and capture their own footage. We're at the Burger Crown restaurant. We sure are. Home of the, what does that say? The king? Home of the King George Burger. Jen and Timothy are on top of the roof. We're looking around the neighborhood. There's about 200 people watching us, even yeah. though they're on top of the roof and no one can see them. No, but they're definitely trying to film Timothy Chalamet. And yes, Jen. yes. They got their cameras out. Yeah. And they got to make out in the scene, so we gave them the special mouthwash, the COVID prevention mouthwash, which they both were glad to use. Yes, there's prescription COVID mouthwash. It tastes better. Shortly after the shoot, the Rutgers School of Dental Medicine reported that Listerine also works fine. I'm not a doctor and can't confirm their conclusion. But their findings are worth sharing just in case you ever need to kiss Timothy Chalamet. On camera, the kiss looks fine. But in person, Jennifer Lawrence is mortified. I lost a veneer in like the first month of shooting. So I had a straight up hole like in my teeth. They'll never see it, they'll CG it. But I got so used to it that I stopped telling people like, oh, by the way, I, I have a hole in my mouth. One person she forgot to tell, Timothy Chalamet. But they got through it. For Jennifer and Timothy, kissing in front of hundreds of people and a movie camera has been part of their job since they were teenagers. And as weird as kissing each other during a pandemic feels, in a way, it's a return to normalcy. Soon, this normalcy will end. There are just two weeks left until production wraps. This is the last movie ever made. Episode six, Apocalypse Fowls. Years have passed since Adam McKay placed a book called The Uninhabitable Earth on his bedside table, a book that gave him nightmares and an urge to do something about his fears of climate change. And it's been 13 months since he transformed those fears into a screenplay called Don't Look Up. Now he's almost done shooting it, and the film's meaning has mutated beyond his control. It's still about the climate crisis, of course, but it's also unavoidably about the United States' response to the pandemic. And he didn't have to change a word. Adam is now even more certain that humanity cannot come together to handle these crises. So how does this story end? So we've been watching thousands and thousands of movies and TV shows for decades and decades. And almost without exception, it's guaranteed that in the ending, it's going to be a happy ending. And I just started wondering, do we all just sort of take that for granted at this point? Do we forget that in real life, to get that happy ending, you actually have to do stuff? Adam wrote a comedy where he put a comet-shaped gun to the planet's head. 
Today, after everything he's seen during the making of the film, the politics, the misinformation, the insurgency, he knows that to tell the truth, he has to pull the trigger. I heard a lot of people just say things like, ah, science will figure it out when it comes to the climate. It'll be fine. We'll come up with a solution. So I just felt like we had to show that a happy ending is not guaranteed, that all is not automatically fine at the end of a movie, and that there would just be a simple power in just doing that with this movie. He has made a tragedy, a film where hope turns to grief. Adam has channeled his own grief into his characters, who pass through the stages of denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. In the last weeks of filming, Jennifer Lawrence's character is deeply in the depression stage. She tries to find comfort at her parents' home, but they won't let her in. Oh, that scene was really sad (laughs) because, you know, she has just been kicked and just, you know, turned inside out with, you know, going on this journey to try to get the politicians to do something and nobody's listening and then she's detained. And I think all she wants to do is, you know, go home and be embraced by her parents. And then she gets up to the door and, you know, politics have prevented them from even connecting as a family anymore. Kate Diviaski, Jen's character, goes back to her southern Illinois town and kind of chooses the road of, like, getting high and just, like, listening to, like, hard music and kind of tuning out, which is certainly a choice people have made, and and maybe it's not a wrong choice. And she meets this kind of skate punk local kind of kid who's shoplifting at the store she works at named Yule. Enter Timothy Chalamet. You that girl from Life TV said roll and die? No. What's your purchase? What the fuck? No, that's you. That's definitely you. Yep, that's me. Holy shit, you're a stone-cold legend. Word is bond. Got a picture of you on my board. Got a picture on this fucking board. Kate and Yule connect because they're both outsiders, and they're, they're a different kind of outsiders, but their through line is that they've both not been accepted by normative standards. Uh, Kate on a much bigger consequential scale, and Yule on his local decoin scale. Yule arrives late in the movie. So late that one can imagine Timothy's fans checking the time and wondering if they're ever going to lay eyes on him. This is unusual for an actor of Timothy's stature. The reference that Adam gave me on this film was a movie called Nashville, which I'd never seen a Robert Altman film, for a reference to something that doesn't have a lead in as much as a world that is built by the characters within it. Uh, and, I, and I like this flavor of a guy, particularly when all the other characters have such consequence in their actions and decisions. Not to say Yule doesn't, but his, his consequences are felt to him, basically. Uh, he's just not uh, making decisions that affect the world on a global scale. However, when Timothy met with Adam, his questions about exactly who Yule is did affect the film. When I was talking with Chalamet before he committed to the movie, and he was like, this is good, but it feels like something's missing here. I was like, yeah, I know what you mean. It's, there's one more thing with the character. And then I was talking to Ron Suskind, who's a producer on the movie, and he, he was saying one thing the movie is missing is, like, religion or God. And I thought, oh, wait a minute. What if Yule was raised by evangelical parents and still, even though he had a falling out with his parents and his church because of some corrupt shit that went on, 
what if Yule still does very much believe in God? And so we ended up adding that to the script and Timothy loved that. And he's been kind of running with it and it sort of changed the direction of the character. Now to change Timothy into this character. As with Meryl Streep's presidential transformation, the first step was the hair. Timothy did not want to look like he always does, you know, and he's got that very distinctive hair because he's got such beautiful hair, massive amount of hair, right? Hair department head Patty Dehaney was in charge of Timothy's look. She took in his vulnerable face and hair like a halo and saw that hair would be the key to turning him into a Midwest punk rock saint. The modern mullet. It's the modern mullet. We did start out with skater looks. I know some of the original ideas were shaped heads with things shaped into it and you know, big hawks and things like that. And then Adam was instructed by his daughters that that's not very cool anymore. So once we found out he was kind of evangelical, but he listens to harder music and he skateboards and shoplifts, then it started being filtered through that a little bit. So. Our idea was he's not like up on every trend and he's kind of like a half-formed guy. So he's not like clearly one thing or the other. Mm -hmm. So then with his look, there was this idea that he would have longer, kind of less fashionable hair and would be a little rougher edged and less defined. Yule is a familiar character to co-producer Stacey Robert Steele. Maybe it's just because I'm from Des Moines, but, like, I know guys like this character. Like, it's kind of like punk rock kids who are also kind of, like, growing up around kind of conservative politics. There's this fine line between, like, libertarian, that sort of thing, where it's like, fuck the system, but it kind of bleeds into almost like a right-wing kind of world. And that's what Timothy's character is. But, yeah, he definitely reminds me of one of my high school boyfriends. (laughs) And now, time to take Timothy's mullet on a road trip. And action! Adam is riding with a small crew, surrounded by cops on an empty highway in Massachusetts. Ahead of them in a car are Jennifer, Timothy, and Leonardo DiCaprio. The cops are barricading traffic. They will not do this for long. So the cast and crew have just 15 minutes to shoot this driving scene. Because we're making a movie, goddammit. <laughs> we're getting a helicopter shot ahead of you guys. It looks great. Adam is directing from a van that the crew has nicknamed the Command Van. All the seats have been removed from their usual front-facing position, with one row bolted along the sidewall, like a low-rent limousine. Adam is sitting on that row, facing a wall of screens that allows him to see what's happening in the other car which is where the real action is. We have the actors Leo, Jen, and Timothy in a car. So we're looking at them on monitors with side cameras on a process trailer towing the car. And we're also looking at a monitor that's our helicopter shot of the highway that they're driving on. And then in post, we'll remove all the cars so it'll look like it's completely empty with them just driving down an empty highway because everyone's watching the bash launch or taking shelter. Those other cars are on the opposite side of the highway, rubbernecking as though they expected to see a grisly accident. Luckily, they're not, although the mood in the actor's car is grim. If Adam had made a typical comet disaster movie where Bruce Willis or Morgan Freeman 
we're in charge of saving the world, the mood in the car might be optimistic, exhilarated even. But Adam has not. And so Jennifer, Timothy, and Leo are quietly listening to music. All our characters knew that we were kind of doomed and we were going back home to have one last final supper. And Adam asked us, because the scene was so short, if we had any ideas for what we wanted to improvise. And then Leo just, I didn't know this about him, but he's a fan of 1940s music. And we sort of decided it fit the character of Randall. So he's playing this Mills Brothers song till then. This very poignant song about this soldier that's going off to war, that's trying to speak to his loved one because he's going off into the unknown. So now he's playing it in the car for them. And it's a pretty haunting song. Till then, this is the song. It's about uh, it's about soldiers going off to World War II and thinking about uh, home. Listen to this part. Although there are oceans we must cross and mountains that we must climb. I know that every game must have a loss. So pray that our loss is nothing but time. My darling, please wait for me till then. No matter when it will be someday. I think this the sequence has a very uh, profound emotional impact and sort of takes the shift away from the, the dark comedy of the movie into a much more somber tone, which is always what attracted me about the screenplay. We'll do one more. Print that for sure. God, I love this scene. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> so strange with the Mills Brothers song, like really specific and kind of beautiful. And the, uh, that surprise in Adam's voice is because he hadn't been sure that Leo's song suggestion would work until this very second when he sees it in action on the monitors. We just kind of came up with it. I was like, maybe he plays some music. And he's like, could I play the Mills Brothers? And I was like, yeah. And it was all spur of the moment. Adam tells the actors to do the scene again. This time, he tells Timothy to improvise a marriage proposal. Profess some love. You hardly know her. You haven't got that much time with her after a little bit of Mills Brother, or maybe the movie, the music moves you. And starting with the dialogue and action. Okay, I gotta ask you something. What? Dr. Minnie, can I be vulnerable in your car? Yeah, go ahead. I've met a lot of people and I've never met anyone like you and I feel a connection to you on a level that I don't know, I haven't told anyone else. And going on a limb, but would you want to spend more time together? Like, maybe even get engaged or something? <laughs> to Kate, Yule is this much needed distraction and like a flicker of joy in a time where there isn't a lot of it. And so I think when he proposes to her, it, it's, it's, it was light because, you know, it's another, another flicker of hope. We're thinking about the future, you know, like I think for, for so many weeks, she had just been thinking about the end of the world. And now, you know, there's this guy that is still positive 
you know, enough to think about a possible future. I don't think that she would actually marry him, but I think that she was, um, she felt ni- it was nice to be asked. Wow. Are you laughing? I'm not. No? Smiling. Well, this, sure. This is sweet. Why not? <laughs> this is pretty sweet. <laughs> After a break, The Last Supper. It's easy to get trapped scrolling on your phone all day reading news about the C-O-M-I-T. Keeping tabs on the news may be helpful for some, but constant real-time updates can also be a recipe for anxiety. If you're feeling overwhelmed during these uncertain times, I'm right there with you. I think most people are. This crisis has reminded us that we are all vulnerable and that it's okay to reach out for support. That's why GoMental's new patent-pending AI therapy bots can... Oh, who's even listening to this anymore? Last night when I was filming one of my ASMR makeup mukbang tutorials, I looked up to apply the lower liner and I saw it. I saw the comet. It's here. It's coming. I can't believe I fucked that volleyball instructor. We're all gonna die! It's February 9th, 2021. For the next three days, the shoot will be headquartered in the town of Framingham, Massachusetts. Population 72,308. They've taken over a neighborhood to shoot scenes in an actual house, not a set. This is not typical for a film production of this scale. Usually you would have built this on stage because there's a lot of scenes here. But we, without exaggeration, could not get construction crew to build it. I think now there's a lot of productions going on here. When Don't Look Up began filming in November 2020, it was an outlier. Movies, especially of this size, were getting shut down due to COVID outbreaks. But this film managed to survive the skyrocketing winter months of the pandemic without one, inspiring other productions to resume, and in this case, inspiring themselves out of being able to hire carpenters. So it's a strange setup right now where, like, we rented out people's garages all around the neighborhood. So it's like the neighborhood has become a neighborhood of film production. And so we're in a van next to the house right now. And there's all, of course, safety rules about COVID as far as how many people can be in the, in the room. Since the cast will be interacting in close quarters, producer Jeff Waxman stands guard on the front stoop. So the guys are inside. I'm literally standing with Stacy by the door, not letting anyone in. There's snow outside, and it's supposed to snow today again. We just changed the order of everything because Adam doesn't want snow in every shot. So Thursday night, we're going to remove about a foot and a half of snow. We have a COVID table set up to the right, mask, gel, you know, everything, people cleaning, and we're opening all the windows. Ventilation is very important. We're parking Adam's uh, command van around the side. He won't even have to be inside. Um, and, yeah, it's just about limiting the people in the house to our what we call our purple zone. The actors, camera, the first AD, one special effects, and the, a couple of grips to run the dolly and sound. This house plays the Midwestern home of Leo's character. 
Inside, he's joined by Melanie Linsky, who plays his wife and their sons. Jen and Timothy are also in the scene, as is Rob Morgan. The idea in the script is that the comet will soon destroy Earth. There's nothing any of these people can do. So they gather for a last meal. There's turkey, salmon, and fingerling potatoes, stuffing and wine, and even an all-American apple pie. Adam directs this scene from inside his command van. Now, Adam, would you like another rehearsal? Another rehearsal, please, yes. Here we go. Inside this real house, with only a small handful of crew, it's easy for the actors to forget that they're filming a movie. Like Connor Sweeney, who plays one of Leo's sons. We were sitting there, I think, uh, the first day we were shooting the dinner scene, and Leo just like looked at all of us and he was like, I just figured out why I'm enjoying this so much. And it's because I have not been able to sit down with people at dinner for over a year. In that moment, once again, the real informed the unreal. The lives in nightly solitude with lonely dinners gave way to collective communing for the camera. We went through this journey, this four or five month journey together, laughing and crying. And then we come and do this last supper meal. And it was very tense at the same time. It was very warm and loving because we all realized that this was gonna be our last supper together and our last moments. But at the same time, we sprinkle in some levity and humor, you know? So (laughs) it it was a trip. And with the shoot winding down, it did feel like a Last Supper, both for the actors and the characters they were playing. The dinner scene was really lovely and kind of poetic because we had done everything that we could do and we knew what was coming. Um, And we just wanted to spend it with each other and not think about it and not talk about it. And um, there was something, you know, really peaceful about that. At the end of the world, these troubled people find that peace. And while this movie does not espouse religion as the cure for the world's problems, for one character, Thoughts of a higher being bring comfort. I believe that somewhere, someone is in charge who loves people more than money or power. Yule's a very important character. He represents faith and God, which, once again, everything's politicized now, so even religion has gotten caught up in tribal boundary lines. But Yule's great because he takes us back to the sort of root of what having a simple abiding faith is all about. And I certainly have moments like that where I think about God and larger plans. How can you not when you look at what's going on? Adam's direction for Timothy was simple. The only thing I told him was 100% sincere. There's nothing about it that's a joke. The audience is going to think we're going to do a joke with it, but it's not. This is why you're at this table. This is why you became a part of this group, is for this moment. Dearest Father and Almighty Creator, we ask for your grace tonight, despite our pride, your forgiveness, despite our doubt. Most of all, Lord, we ask for your love to soothe us through these dark times. 
may we face whatever is to come in your divine will with courage and open hearts of acceptance. Amen. Amen. Wow, you's got some church game. The prayer is how Yule says goodbye. And Leo had an idea about how his character would do the same, inspired by a classic post-apocalyptic television episode from the 1950s. I remember telling Adam that I really remember the Twilight Zone episode, um, Time Enough at Last, with Burgess Meredith, written by Rod Serling. And I just remember his character saying, the thing of it is, the thing of it is, though. And I wanted to incorporate that with Randall's last line. It is. We we really we really did have everything, didn't we? I mean, when you think about it. And I remember going to Adam's trailer and suggesting that for the final line of the movie, because I think Randall really does realize that all our characters and humanity, for that matter really lived in heaven on earth, and it was all about to disappear. When we were shooting it, we were all very emotional, because you realize that's what it would be. That is what you would do. I mean, you would gather with family. You would, you would start to feel really sacred, powerful, beautiful, quiet feelings that usually the day in, day out life uh, makes so much noise, they're hard to get in touch with. And you realize that's probably what would emerge and everyone could kind of feel that there was some, some truth to it. Adam is not a religious man. He's got that kind of walk in the woods version of spirituality. To him, this moment at the dinner satisfies the poetic optimist side of him. The cynical realist writes the other ending. Adam's idea was that the rich and powerful would always find a way to escape. With every movie I've worked on, we've always tried to mess with the endings a little bit to not make them clean, formulaic endings. And that's certainly the case with Don't Look Up, is that the movie is structured like a traditional comedy, but in the end you realize it's actually a horror movie or a tragedy. But then still, there's a few laughs after that, too. For the billionaires and politicians who enrich themselves during the apocalypse, they escape Earth, cryogenically freeze themselves, and over 20,000 years later, land on a new planet to make the same mistakes again. Meryl Streep's President Orlean is there. So is the tech mastermind, played by Mark Rylance, along with dozens of their closest tycoons. Actually higher than on Earth by nine percent, so you might feel a bit lightheaded. Cryo chambers were 58% successful, which is much better than anticipated. No, we only had 47 dead. And due to the cryo chambers, they're all naked. Which means to shoot the scene, Adam McKay must also bring along Marcus Watson. I am an intimacy coordinator for film and TV, and I also do intimacy direction for stage. Intimacy coordinator is a relatively new Hollywood job. For most of movie-making history, scenes that involve nudity or sexual intimacy focused on protecting the actors' bodies with pasties and merkins, 
while paying scant attention to protecting the actor's emotional comfort. Recently, this has begun to change. Intimacy coordinators like Marcus are on set solely to advocate for the actor's inner well-being, to ensure that everyone agrees on what will happen and how. As this scene has a spaceship full of naked people, Marcus has a lot of elbows and knees and chests and butts to intimately coordinate. We had 41 background, and then we had body doubles, and then we had Marilyn Mark. Meryl Streep and Mark Rylance will not actually be getting naked, hence the body doubles. There were over 40 people of different ages, from younger end to I know we had people in their 80s. I talked with every single actor beforehand, and we roughly had a 15-minute conversation. Some of them were a little longer because they also had questions about intimacy coordinator and things of that nature. I mean, when else do you get to talk to 41 different actors about nudity and being on a set like this? It was just a lot of fun. I think I'll remember that. In the scene, the dazed and naked elite emerge from the ship, eager to stretch and pet some new outer space animals. Imagine Adam and Eve traipsing through the Garden of Eden, except that Eve is the former president of the United States, who no longer has to cover her lower back tattoo. On set, Marcus wants his actors to feel that liberated. And I feel like that's just kind of what this is. They're being on this new planet, and they are just living in the wonder, and there's not this fear or anxiety about body image. It's not even commented on, which I think is amazing in that we are just allowed to be in this moment and not worry about our bodies or our anxieties around our bodies, which I think is fantastic and needed. In the film, these titans of industry and government have been reborn. And if you're not happy for them, good. Because frankly, it's depressing that they survived while literally everyone else died in what is supposed to be a comedy. Netflix, understandably, I mean, they were quite collaborative and open to this movie, even though it's a pretty wild movie. But understandably, they were very concerned about the ending. But at the end of the day, I did know that you can play the exact same story beat, but change the music, the edit pattern, change the tone, and it can play completely differently. So... Then I did want to have some other beats for the end, which is why we end on the new planet with President Orlean and the Bronto Rock. I always thought that was a great little epilogue to the movie. I wonder, are those feathers or are they scale? That's disgusting. What is that thing? I believe that's called a Bronto Rock. And then I love at the end of the credits, Jonah being the last man on Earth. Actually, both those endings were ideas that we came up with while we were shooting or right before we were shooting. I'm a big believer in when you write something, your best day alive, you're only going to be right about 70% of the time as far as how it plays. So I didn't mind getting alternate little epilogues or endings. I was definitely worried about the ending because you don't normally do that kind of ending. But I, I knew we had moves in the edit room, so I wasn't that freaked about it. Whatever day it is, day 62 of filming, February 18th, last day 
I'm walking out to the van to meet Kate. Good morning. How you doing? Good. Good. Co-producer Stacy Roberts Steele and script supervisor Kate Hardman share a final masked van ride to set. Production on this tragicomic satire about the end of the world has come to its own end. It's been a hard shoot for everyone, but especially so for costume designer Susan Matheson, who was diagnosed with cancer in the middle of the movie and decided to continue working while getting treatment. Living in this fictional world has been a valuable distraction. Because of COVID, we started the movie in February of 2020, and now we're in 2021. So it's been a huge chunk of our lives. It feels like a passage now. It feels like a transition. And we're moving on from one part of our life to another. And we've lived through COVID. So it just feels monumental and it's bigger than us. I always get really, really depressed on the last day and I tend to want to go into an igloo and disappear because it's really sad. Because you get so used to shooting and the intensity of it that you can't imagine life any other way. And so I kind of spontaneously start bursting into tears about every hour on the hour. So Elaine can vouch for me. How many times have I already cried today, Elaine? About three times. And the emotions keep flowing as Adam yells, cut. <laughs> well, I want to thank everyone for a great shoot. That was amazing. Everyone, um, you all know, you went above and beyond. Did incredible work, and I'm just uh, so grateful. It was also an amazing experience working with all of you. Thank you. They finished. Only now can Jennifer Lawrence celebrate what they've accomplished. Dude, the fact that we can actually say, I refuse to say it, obviously, up until wrap, but the fact that we did not shut down one day due to COVID is crazy. It fucking worked. So on, on the last day, I'm just gonna say I see you on the next one. Everyone commemorates the end with their own rap ritual. For COVID coordinator Ali Wolf, it's this. I'm not going to lie. I love that moment where you add the project to your IMDb. And I usually save that till the end. The literal end. Allie is literally the last name on the IMDb page. But without her work, none of this would have been possible. As for Jennifer Lawrence's ritual. Ideally, before you rap, you should be an organized enough person to like figure out like rap gifts for everybody and you know, little thank you notes so that you're not overwhelmed on the last day. I have yet to ever do that in my life. Until this movie. Let the record show that Jennifer Lawrence did remember to give out Don't Look Up rap gifts on time. As Jennifer Lawrence and pretty much everyone else heads home, a few remain, like co-producer Jen Madeloff, who's responsible for packing up all the mess and will be the last one to head for the airport. We have to wrap up the departments, get rid of the equipment, and then all our purchases you know, we have a lot of COVID purchases. We have, we're, it's a big movie in four different speeds. We have our production office, we have our art office, we have our Waymiss stage, we have our set deck and special effects space. It's just cleaning everything up and getting it out. And it does usually take longer than you think. But everyone's pretty motivated to go home and 
new jobs are waiting. So hopefully it will move a little quicker than normal. Back in November 2020, Don't Look Up genuinely felt like the last movie that might ever be made in this way, out in the world, on location. As spring dawns, as vaccinations expand, the cast and crew are now able to look forward to making other movies. But this one will forever be special. Not just for how and when it was made, but for what it said. Don't Look Up is a metaphor for the fact that we have stopped looking around us. We no longer see that we have this incredible world and it's going to shit. If you have your eyes to the ground, you're not seeing anything ahead. I feel like um, so many people have just ha haven't been looking the right way. And so I hope that this, just even in the slightest way, changes the perception when it comes to like politics, social and racial injustice, when it comes to the pandemic. It's gonna have some people thinking, I think, on another level about how important it is to be grateful for what you have, who you have, and to value your really short-lived time on this earth. Like at an instant, if things were to, to go, can you say you were happy with the life you led? Like Susan, song lyricist Tar Stinson, and Rob Morgan, Kate Blanchett hopes they've made a film that matters. But after people sit still for two hours to watch the movie, they'll get up and do something. In the end, it's about a comet that is hitting the Earth and the ramifications. It's not just going to affect the coast of Mexico or Taiwan or California. It's going to have a global impact. And so it's, it's I, I hope it makes them think about what they value and think about, you know, what connects us all. At the end of this dangerous, wild journey, the question of whether it was all worth it whether audiences will take the movie's message to heart, remains. Adam is both hopeful and realistic. As far as the message being understood of the movie, I think people are going to perceive it a lot of different ways. And that's okay. You're just hoping that like 10% of the audience, 20% of the audience takes it how you intended. And that would actually be wildly successful if that happened. So I, I don't expect it to be universally understood or perceived the way I intended, but if I can get like 10%, 20%, that would be pretty great. And so here we are in late February, 2021. Shooting is complete. And although it's technically not the end of the road, there's still editing, visual effects, and scoring to be done. This milestone calls for a toast. To a great experience and Victory and to, making a great film. To a pseudo last day of filming. Yes. Pseudo last day. Pseudo last day, because yeah. tomorrow we gotta do a VFX. We gotta do the effects, and then we gotta do the street show. And then we gotta fucking add the movie, and then it's gotta come out, and then we gotta get reviews, and oh my god! We gotta edit a podcast. Others were on to the next thing. Jennifer Lawrence went to New Orleans to play a war on terror veteran. Leonardo DiCaprio went to Oklahoma to shoot a 1920s crime drama. Tyler Perry went to the Academy Awards, where he was given an Oscar in honor of his humanitarian work. Timothy Chalamet went to Cannes, where his shiny suit became a meme. Meryl Streep went home to her three Oscars, one of which she once forgot in a bathroom stall. 
Jeff Waxman and Jen Madeloff went back to work producing a trio of action films. Kevin Messick went with Adam McKay to produce a TV series about the Los Angeles Lakers. And Susan Matheson is, of course, doing the costumes for said Lakers show. And she's bringing her velvet paintings of John Wayne and the Wolf. She continued her treatment and is now cancer-free. And Stacy went back to L.A., where she reunited with her three-year-old daughter, Frida. Here we are going to pick up Frida. I'm so excited. They put her. (laughs) 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 Now we get to hang out all the time. I'm just back for good. Isn't that great? Oh, Frida, this is so exciting. Frida, you got so tall. Look at this. You're all the way up to my waist. You're so tall. I'll get on the Composer Nicholas Bertel went on to write the score of Domica, and will soon be collaborating on more songs with lyricist Tara Stinson for a musical revamp of Carmen. Caretaker Eugene Moore is still in Ireland, enjoying the great outdoors. Perhaps when pheasant season ends, Eugene will pour himself a whiskey and watch the movie that Adam wrote under his watch. And after four decades in the business, script supervisor Kate Hardman finally retired, for real this time. She's back in Texas, where she's used her earnings from the film to build her dream garden. Little airstream is the casita and the fountain. Raised beds, so don't have to bend over as far. Um, citrus trees, and that's what I did during the pandemic. And when she sits down to watch her final film, Adam has one last surprise for the woman who's been by his side for 15 years. As the opening credits come up, Kate will see her own name there. As a producer, I, I sit next to Kate all day long. We talk about the shots. We talk about what we're getting. We talk about the edit of the movie. Through the years, we laugh. We come up with jokes. I mean, that is a fully deserved co-producer credit and probably long overdue. But I'm so glad that she got it on this movie. It's so appropriate. Most difficult, crazy movie we've ever done together. As for Adam, there's a new book on his bedside table. I'm actually reading War and Peace. Tolstoy is very enjoyable. People think of him as like a dusty old writer, but he's a really fun writer. And I just realized I'd never read War and Peace, so I've gotten into that. And then I'm also reading that book, Reign of Terror, that's about how kind of America came undone after 9-11. And then I'm listening to a podcast called The Fall of Civilizations, which I love. It's all about the collapse of different empires throughout history. <laughs> so that's that's my reading I got going right now. And then I think my phone charger and then a pack of uh, nicotine lozenges. That's what's by the side of my bed. How grim is that? Jesus. <laughs> I sound like a like a worker at Chernobyl a month after the meltdown. All I'm missing is like a bottle of vodka and a handgun. (laughs) What do you get when you mix together 19th century Russian, post 9-11 America, and the ghosts of old empires? I have a suspicion we'll find out.
The last movie ever made is a production of Netflix Film, Hyper Object Industries, and Pineapple Street Studios. It's produced by Emmanuel Hapses, Gabrielle Lewis, Stacey Robert Steele, Danielle Waxman, Sophie Bridges, and Alexis Moore. Our editor is Darby Maloney. The show's narrated by Emmanuel Hapses. Our theme song is by Nicholas Bertel. Mixing, sound design, and original music by Hannes Brown with additional music from Epidemic Sound. The show is written by R. Roosevelt. Fact-checking by Charlotte Gadu. Executive producers at HyperObject Industries are Adam McKay, Harry Nelson, and Claire Slaughter. Executive producers at Pineapple Street Studios are Barry Finkel, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. Don't Look Up is streaming now on Netflix. Follow at Netflix Film on Instagram and Twitter. Oh, you thought there wouldn't be a post credit scene? Come on. Of course there is. You might remember that Stacy was working on a song during her time inside the Don't Look Up bubble. Well, she finished it. And here it is. Day one, we're at the telescope with Jen Lawrence and Leo DiCaprio. They're spewing all kinds of science Why we make sure that we're COVID-compliant. President Meryl Streep is given a speech. While there's a real president we're trying to impeach. Rob Morgan knows just what to do. He knows a thing about a thing about a thing or two. And Melanie Linsky is on her way. And oh my God, we got Ariana Grande. It's the last movie ever made. No, it's the last movie ever made we thought while we shoot a movie in a pandemic it'd be fun to shoot a concert within it this film is getting so nutty but oh my god here comes sexy kid cuddy and mark rylance is on his way and oh my god we got timothy chalamet it's the last movie ever made no it's the last movie ever made hopefully i can get a ride from a teamster so we can escape this nor'easter jonah hill is making us laugh that's why he's a motherfucking chief of staff and kate blanchett is on her way and Oh my God, we got Tyler Perry. It's the last movie ever made. No, it's the last movie ever made.